Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you, thank you for making Christmas fall on a Sunday. Thank you, God, for bringing some of the most important things in the world to us all together on the same day. Father, thank you that we have seen this morning that you can use songs to really minister to us, to bless us, to teach us, to lift us up and encourage us and to point us to you. Father, we pray now that as we come to your word, that you would cause the truth that you have spoken to dwell down in our hearts, that we would love you as our Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you would, turn in the Bible to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, that's the first book in the New Testament, the first page in the New Testament probably, Matthew chapter 2. Today's going to be a lot different than what we normally do. I had told you that we were taking a break from the Gospel of Mark and me preaching through it and going to do some Christmas messages. And last week I preached on Christmas and... Um, and today I'm going to do the same, but today's going to be a lot different. I'm going to walk you through a couple different passages. I'm not going to have my, my three points like I normally do. And I want to introduce to you the, the, the idea of, of Jesus being king and why that is so important. Um, you heard me pray right there at the very beginning that I'm thankful that God made Christmas fall on a Sunday. Um, I'm fully aware that it's complicated our lives and our, our weekend, right? I didn't get to my stocking yet this morning. It's still hanging there, and all the, the goodies are still in it. I just wasn't able to get to it yet. So the, the, the Christmas with the, some gifts and the stocking will have to wait till after church and, and after lunch. And, and, you know, that is a little bit awkward. And the kids uh, were able to open some presents but maybe not get into them fully yet. And that's just the way it goes on this day. But I mean this with all my heart. There's some very, very, very important things in my life, and that is Jesus, my church, my family, and, and, and holidays. And I think that y'all would agree with those, right? And, and, and God seems to have brought all of them together in one day today. And so I wish that I was already into my presence, and I wish that I was sitting at home right now eating some sausage balls, because that's my favorite Christmas snack. Um... There's a lot of those things I'm missing out on right now, perhaps watching the, you know, Macy's Day Parade on TV or, or all those things. But these things right here are so important. I realize it's complicated. I, you, you, can, you can mark me on this. I've not tried to make anybody feel guilty about whether they were here last night or here today. And, and, and I realize a lot of people weren't able to make it today. And I don't want anybody to feel bad about that. Uh, it's complicated this weekend. I understand. But I want you to know from, from my heart that those are some of the very most important things in the world to me. Certainly Jesus, the most important. And God's brought them all together. And so I feel like this is outstanding that we're here on Christmas morning worshiping Jesus. I'm happy about this. I'm happy that my family's here and that we're here to do it with you all. And uh, the songs are songs that we've sung before, but you put Jesus at the very center of them. Emily, that, that you singing Oh Holy Night was incredible. I, I was thinking to myself, my stocking can wait till whenever, as long as I can keep listening to you sing that and you lead us in singing that. And many of you all know that 
the hymn in the hymnal number two is holy, 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 and that's my, that's my favorite song. Uh, it's just a song about God, that God is good, and I love holy, 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 and, and Joe, thank you so much for uh, singing a hymn, holy, 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 that's been turned into a Christmas song, right? Holy, 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 God with us, which is so special, and Joe, I appreciate you doing that. And uh, so there's a lot, a lot on my heart and mind right now about how meaningful this, this moment is. And so I appreciate y'all making it a priority to be here. And I want now God to kind of put the icing on the cake with us looking to his word. In the bulletin I've got as this sermon title, King of the Bluegrass. And ever since I moved to Fairdale, I've been familiar with this big giant basketball tournament that our town hosts at the high school hosts called the king of the bluegrass and that's a tournament that is a uh, tournament full of teams and some of the best teams in the city and the best teams in the state come here and then by invitation only several teams from outside of the state this year there are teams from georgia and tennessee and teams from all over the place get to come and and come to fairdale and play in this tournament and they get to have a big holiday classic called the King of the Bluegrass. And the winner gets to brag that they're the, the winners, the champions, the kings, if you will, of the bluegrass, of the bluegrass state, of the state of Kentucky. And that's, that's cool to think about. And as I was speaking to one of the teams as a, as a pregame talk uh, on, on Friday, it was a team from out of state. I was speaking to them. I didn't really want them to win, but I had to give them a talk. So I said to them, how cool would it be if you're not even from Kentucky, but you had a trophy saying that you were the king of the bluegrass? Wouldn't that be cool? Wouldn't it be really cool to come from out of state into the state and go back home saying, yeah, I went up there to Kentucky and beat all those guys? There's something about being able to call yourself the king of something. Now, they didn't win, so we're all good. We kept it local. It wasn't Fairdale High School, but Trinity High School won the king of the bluegrass. They're the champions. Kept it right here in the city. All those teams traveled all those miles, came to Kentucky, got beat, and went back home as losers, not as champions. And that's the way we like it, right? Our town, our city, our state wants to be the kings of the bluegrass. But the reason why it's called the king is meaning we're the, we're the best. And we get that. But I want you to know that long before there was, 36 years ago, the dream of a basketball tournament that we would call the king of the bluegrass, there was already a king of the bluegrass. Jesus is the king of the state of Kentucky. He's king over Fairdale. And it's always been that way. And when you really get into the Christmas story, you see that, yes, it's fascinating there's a baby. You know, the, the, the parts of Mary being met with an angel and her getting this unbelievable news that she's going to be pregnant and her response being, how can this be? I've never been with a man. The angel says, that's okay. God's going to take care of it. And her answer being, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let God do to me whatever he sees fit. What an awesome answer. Then you have Joseph all perplexed over it, and God comes to him in a dream and tells him that he needs to go through with the plan, that this is God's plan and it's good. Joseph wakes from the dream and says, I'll do it. 
And the faith that Joseph models of doing what God wants him to do and trusting in God is outstanding. God going to the shepherds first, keeping watch over their flocks by night, going with haste, and I love that that word is there, with haste to the scene to see the baby. They see the baby, they're in awe, they're worshiping God, and then they're right back to the field. The wise men traveling from the east, gold and frankincense and myrrh, these gifts in search of the king that they could worship. You know, the story goes on and on. Jake just read in John chapter 1 that God says that God became flesh and dwelt among us. The Christmas passages are many, and they're so good. I'm glad that here over the last month we've been familiar with them. In Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, it's the story of the wise men, and it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, so notice that there is a king there, which, which only adds to the emphasis of Jesus being king. While Herod the king was reigning, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who's been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And I want to ask this very question this morning. In your life, where is he who is king? That's a good question for us to ask at Christmas. Let's make no mistake about it that we understand kingdoms and kingship, right? Inside of a kingdom, every single thing lives and moves and breathes and functions and operates and satisfies and delights and gets happy and is joyed by the king's reign, if the king's reign is a good one. And that's what it means to be in a kingdom. Everything answers and beckons and bows down to the king inside of a kingdom. The wise men knew this all too well. They came from far and they brought gifts and they came to the king and they bowed down to him. And they came looking. Even though there was a king, they quickly bypassed him. Where is the king? And they found him and they worshiped him. I want you to know here today that Jesus Christ is king. I want to show you this through the scriptures today. I want to ask you, is he honestly your king? Is your life bowed down to him? Does your life carry a posture with it? I think this morning that word's going to be key for us. Does your life have a, have a posture to it of bowed down? Does your speech look like it's surrendered to the Lord Jesus? Does your ability to react to people who act certain ways to you model that you are bowed down to Jesus? Do your family relationships resemble that there is a bowed knee and bowed heart to a king? Is your life in the kingdom where Jesus the king reigns? Now, I want to walk you through the Bible like I've said, and hopefully if you can write down some verses and even turn in your Bible, you'll, you'll be able to get this. Since God is the king, 
He created everything that he would be the king over. And you remember this early in the Bible, in the garden, God created them. You had people who were happy and they were not sinful and God was reigning over them and God spoke to them and God told them what to do and all of that. And it seemed to be a pretty good thing. But then, because of temptation from the, from the serpent, temptation from the devil, Adam and Eve sinned, and the curse came, and the whole earth now is under the curse, and things changed. And so you still had God as a king, but you have now people that don't really want God as a king. They understand, maybe, that he's a king, but now the, the king and, and people relationship has been marred. It's been messed up. And so we, we may still recognize that there is a, a God king out there, but we don't, we don't bow our knees him and that's the way the world is now one might readily admit that yes God is a king but it doesn't look like we're a kingdom if you look at the world or certainly not a kingdom in the kingdom of God and so the world continued on this way and we get to the book of Judges and it's a fascinating book in the book of Judges I don't know if you've read it before but time and time again in the book of Judges, you have verses like Judges 17.6 that says this, In those days there was no king in Israel, no king, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. I don't know if you've ever read the book of Judges. I don't know if you know that that's the theme. It says it time and time again. It even concludes with the very last verse, the very last sentence in the whole book of Judges says it again. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And it gives us this picture of how terrible life and society gets if everybody does what they think is right. We, we don't know. We need to be surrendered to a king that teaches us what is right. And so if there is no king, then we won't. And there was a king, certainly, God, but they didn't recognize him as God, so there was no king. And as things got worse and worse and worse, all of a sudden, the people started requesting, we want a king, we want a king. If you can find it in your Bibles, I want you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 8. I want you to see this scene of where this happens. Again, God is a king. He's described himself as a king. They've recognized him as a king. But because of their sinfulness, their waywardness, they don't want him as a king. They don't like him as a king. They don't, they don't follow him as a king. And so the, the relationship of king and kingdom is messed up. And in 1 Samuel chapter 8, we have... a story of this. Now Samuel was a sort of prophet. He was a man of God that God had been using. He was anointed. 1 Samuel chapter 8, when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Does everybody see that? Their request as the people of God is for Samuel to give them a king. They want to be like all the other nations of the world. They don't want to be a nation where God is king. That's what they are. 
But let me remind you that God doesn't change. He's always, always, always the same. And so if God is the king and now they don't want him as king, the problem is with them. They want a different situation. They want a situation that they think is better. And there's a big underlying theme here that shows that what we think is best is not what's best. God knows what's best for us, not us. And so the request is we want a king like all the other nations. Verse 6. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. Samuel knew that that was bad. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, for they have rejected me from being king over them. So you see what's happening here? Their desiring of a king seems like a good thing if you look at the people and the king and all of that. But what it means is they're not happy with God as their king. And we're going to start to get at here this morning what I think is really, really important for you to understand. When I ask, is Jesus king to you? Is your heart and life bowed down to King Jesus? Are you in the kingdom of God? Whether you gladly say, yes, I want Jesus to be my king, or whether or not you're not sure of that, begins to speak to where you're at and, and why not and how you're displeased with God as being king and you wanting somebody else to be king. Now, we live in America where freedom reigns and we do not have a king over us and you're able to do so much of what you want to do, but your life is still surrendered to something. And so if it's not a king like in America who's king over you, and if it's not God who's king over you, then, then most likely it's probably you in a, in a humble brag or a false humility. It's, it's, it's probably you acting like king. Now, you would never say that I am king. But practically speaking, functioning, you act like you're king. You do what's best according to you. You do what's right in your eyes. You determine what you think is the good thing for you or the right way to go or whatever. And whether you would admit it or not, God is not your king. This is the problem that's happening here. Now, they're going to say that God's their king. You know the story of the Old Testament. They're the people of God, and they continue to cry out to God, and then they live how they want to. But the big picture is that God's not their king. They don't want him to be their king. They want somebody else to be their king. And this is very, 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 very common. And we get to this coming out of Judges, where in those days there was no king. And so everybody did what was right in his own eyes, and that's a problem. And you know what they did next that was right in their eyes? They asked Samuel for a king. Samuel's upset about it. He prays to God, and God says, give it to them. They're not rejecting you, Samuel. Don't take it personal. This is about how they are with me. And what I want us to understand here at Christmas time is that it's absolutely a tragedy, a problem, for you and I to not be bowed down to King Jesus, for us to not be God-worshippers, for us to not have bowed hearts and bowed heads and bowed knees to him is wrong. The Christmas story is to remind us of this. I want to read to you just a few passages of Scripture that point this out. Psalm 29.10, the Lord sits enthroned as king forever. Psalm 72.11, may all kings fall down before him May all nations serve him. 
Psalm 102, 15, nations will fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. Turn with me now to the book of Daniel. It's tucked away in the prophets. If you can find it, if not, you can just listen up. One of the things that happens when we're in the position like the people of Israel there with Samuel or finding ourselves uh, thinking that we need to be our own king or asking for a king or not wanting God as our king is that we begin to think in our minds that God is not the king. For all practical purposes, it seems like he's not involved or he's not there, he doesn't care or anything like that. And I want to show you the, the folly of this. And the book of Daniel is outstanding at teaching us that God really is the king and it is a foolish thing to find yourself in position of not bow down to the king and the danger of being in that position. I want you to look at Daniel chapter 2, verse 47. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. What we have here is a king perplexed, Nebuchadnezzar, at why his life is the way it is and not being able to answer it and figure it out and, and Daniel interpreting dreams and explaining it to him through God's power. And so the king, Nebuchadnezzar, who at the time is the king of Babylon, most powerful king in all of the world, has to humble himself and confess that Daniel's God, who's giving him this power, is truly the king. Now, I'm not sure what your life is like, and Christmas is a time where we start to count our blessings. And maybe perhaps your life is so blessed that you've never been brought to your knees to where you've had to recognize God as king. And I would pray here today that that would not be a situation where it made you proud and pushed away from God. But in turn, I pray it would be the opposite, that you would be humbled and drawn near to God. Whether you need God or not right now is perhaps up to you. But God is king. And to not need him right now is foolish and blinded. Because here soon enough, you're going to need him. Now, the obvious is that y'all need him right now. If he was to stop your heart right now, he could. But what I'm getting at is there's coming a time, I assure you, quite soon, where you will absolutely need him. You will cry out to him. But will you know him as king? In Daniel chapter 4, we have an interesting, interesting, interesting passage. Nebuchadnezzar now has had another bad dream. Daniel comes and explains it. And I want you to look at Daniel chapter 4, verse 28. Again, we're talking about King Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful king in the world, the king of Babylon. God has just done something uh, scary in Nebuchadnezzar's life and that he's given him this dream. He doesn't know what it means. And Daniel comes and explains it to him. And it's talking about how Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom is going to fall. Nebuchadnezzar's going to lose his power and his glory. God's telling him that. Start reading in verse 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. 
At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and says, Is this not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Can you picture? Can you picture a man gloating in all of his glory? He's standing on the roof of his palace, this mansion, and he's looking out over the world. And and in all reality, there is nobody on the planet that is more powerful than him. Nobody can stop him. And he's saying, look at this, I built it all, my power, my majesty, my glory, I did it all. Folks, you know the danger in that. The Bible warns that God opposes the proud. And to not humble yourself under the mighty hand of God is to be in a scary, scary position. And this is where we find Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 31, while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Do you see that? God says, no more, Nebuchadnezzar. I'm about to break you down until you understand what? That God is the king. That's all he's wanting Nebuchadnezzar to understand. Until you understand that I'm the king and I give kingdoms and that your reign is from me, I'm going to break you down. The whole issue in this passage is Nebuchadnezzar's pride, his unwillingness to bow his knee, and therefore God coming at him to break him down and get him to recognize that God is the king. That's the whole context, but watch what he does. Verse 33, immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like birds' claws. It's a fascinating passage. It's kind of weird. It's interesting. God made Nebuchadnezzar turn beast-like. He's in a field, and he's eating grass, and he's got claws now, and his hair's grown out, and he's, he's sweating, and he's wet, and he's, God has humbled him to the point of complete humility. He goes from standing on the porch, gloating as the most powerful man on the earth, refusing to humble himself before God Almighty, to being broken down. Now look at verse 34. At the end of the days, I, now we have Nebuchadnezzar talking, I lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. Now listen to what he says about God. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. And look at verse 37. One of my favorite verses in the whole Bible, Daniel 4, 37. If you're a young person, if you're a man, if you struggle with pride, you must know this verse. Circle it, highlight it, memorize it, learn this verse. Now, I, I Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor who? The king of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just. And look at this. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. You need to know that verse. And when attitude comes and pride flares up and 
the me monster comes out in you that you think you're great or you need to assert yourself and so forth and so forth. And when you become selfish and you become self-centered and life becomes all about you and you start recognizing how good you are and how great you are and you forget that everything good in you is from God's grace as a gift, you need to be reminded of Daniel 4.37 that those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Well, as you know, they get kings. God gives them a king. The first king, Saul, starts off good, and then he turns bad, and next thing you know, the people are groaning, and they immediately, after the first king, are saying, this, this whole king thing isn't what we thought it would be. It's not as good for us as we thought. But then God raised up another king, and the, the next king is David, and David reigns well over them, and they like it, and the, the kingdom is good, and the kingdom is, is prospering and all of that. But, but David sins, and then David re- is restored, and then, and then David dies. And this idea of king is like... We, we don't get it, God. It's not as good as we thought. We need a king, but we, we don't have a king. We want a king, but it's not. And, and it's like this, this relationship of king and kingdom and people is, is not what it's supposed to be. And the reason why, folks, is because God is king. And life does not make sense. Listen to me. Things do not begin to really click in your heart and in your mind. True peace does not come. True joy does not come. Life being satisfying and, 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 and your heart being at rest does not come until your life is bowed down to Jesus. Until God is the king. Until wise men traveling from the east carrying presents, looking for he who has been born king of the Jews, until that connection in your mind connects with them, life is still going to be a mystery to you. Deaths are going to be raising more questions than they are going to be providing answers. Love in your heart and understanding the emotions of what it means to to love people and love loved ones and love enemies and love neighbors and and love strangers and that, that weird thing of love that happens in your heart from time to time will not make sense until you understand God is a king over you that loves you and in his love for you sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for you. Until you understand God is king, Joe singing from the cradle to the cross, God with us isn't going to, like, mean something. And yet people don't get it. They don't get it. So when David dies and they start looking for a king, we get this great promise that there will be a king coming who will sit on the throne forever. We have this great truth in the Bible that there is a king that reigns forever. And that's Jesus. And he reigns right now. And so I'll go back to the question I asked at the beginning. Does he reign over you? Are you bowed down to him? I want to ask you to turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 1. This is the last book of the Bible. I know you know that. Revelation chapter 1. I think you know the context of Revelation, but let me remind you, John, the, the, the apostle, the disciple, 
is in persecution. He's been captured. He's now taken to this island named Patmos, and that's where he's left to live the rest of his life and to die. While he's on that island, God gives him this one single vision revelation. Just a reminder, it's not revelations. There's no S here. It's only one vision. We need to be careful with visions. He gets one vision. It's called the revelation that God gives him. And he sees Jesus. And Jesus says to him in verse 4, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, write this, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. This king that I'm telling you about all morning. The baby that was lying in a manger wrapped in swaddling clothes that the wise men came to worship. That king rules everybody. Everybody. Turn over with me in Revelation to chapter 17. You know that the book of Revelation is full of imagery, and here we have the great prostitute and the beast. And what this is, these are two horrible, evil enterprises in the world. It's hard to identify what those are, but they would be enterprises in the world that are representing Satan and being used by Satan. Hard to say whether it's actually Satan himself, maybe so, but enterprises in the world. It could be the big sexual problem that we have in the world, that sexual immorality runs, runs rampant and it's messing up people and killing people. It could be that being used by God. It could be an economic enterprise in the world, but these are the things that we have. Enemies in the world, but I want you to look at Revelation chapter 17. Verse 14, they will make war on the Lamb, okay? So this this evil enterprise is now raging, making war against Jesus Christ. And the Lamb will conquer them. Well, sure he will. He's the king. Absolutely he will. We know how this story's going to end. It may be pretty terrifying living in it today, but we know how this story's going to end. Everything will rise up against Jesus, and Jesus will conquer them. He reigns. He's king of the world. The Lamb will conquer them. Look what it says. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. Turn with me to chapter 19. We're getting to the very, very end of the Bible, which is introducing to us in many ways the very, very end of time. And you know that the Bible's consistent and faithful message listen to me, is that the world will end with the return of Jesus. In Advent, which we've lit these candles every Sunday since Thanksgiving, representing that Jesus has come, the Bible speaks of two great comings, two Advents, right? The first Advent is Christmas, the birth of Jesus. The second Advent is the return of Christ, which we wait. And Revelation 19 describes for us what that will be like. After we have uh, a picture of heaven in the beginning of chapter 19, that we have a marriage supper of the Lamb, which is interesting that God invites all of the people that are in his family to sit down and have a meal, a big marriage supper, as Jesus the groom is united with the church, all believers, his bride, and they have a big meal together. That marriage supper happens, and look at verse 11. Chapter 19. Remember, John is still having a vision. Then I saw heaven opened, 
And behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Let me pause for just a second. You know the significance of the blood, right? The cross where Jesus died. You understand? What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And when Christ comes back, there will not need to be any bloodshed on his behalf. He's already dealt with our sins on the cross, but he will be wearing a robe dipped in blood so that you and I never forget. We are only right with him by his works, not ours. That's a real king. Most kings are begging and begging and begging and enforcing people to serve them. The real king serves us. Gave his life. Gave his blood. And so when the skies open up and the king comes back riding on a horse, he's going to be wearing a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And I realize in 2016 we have many, many people wanting Jesus and not wanting the Word of God. Folks, there is no separation. Jesus is the Word of God in the flesh. Jesus is the Word. What the Word says is Jesus. What Jesus does is the Word. Jesus and the Word of God go together. His name is the Word of God. Church, we, we shall never and may you never, never, never separate your faith in the Lord Jesus from the truth of the Word of God. The moment you've gotten away from the Word of God is the moment you are no longer Christian his name is the word of God verse 14 and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen white and pure were following him on white horses and from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty and look at verse 16 and on his robe and on his thigh I don't want to talk about it right now, but I think Jesus has a tattoo. He has a name written on his thigh. And here's what the name is. King of kings and Lord of lords. He reigns. You know, Philippians chapter 2 says, as Paul is writing this great Christ hymn in chapter 2 of Philippians 5 through 11, and it's about the humility of Christ and that we're to have the attitude of Jesus and Jesus humbled himself so far to the point of death. And he's talking about how we, we should take upon that himself. When he finishes that hymn at verse 11, he says this in verse, verses 11 and 12. That one day, every single knee will bow to Jesus. And every single tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Michael Jordan, LeBron James, who has nicknamed himself King James, Barack Obama, Donald Trump, Fidel Castro, Osama bin Laden, Saddam Hussein, Hitler, whoever, will one day be shoulder to shoulder with us in this position. Bow down to the one who is the true king 
The shepherds knew it. They went with haste to see him. Mary and Joseph knew it. They got in line and bowed themselves down to God's plan right away. The wise men knew it and humbled themselves beyond their majesty and their gifts and their wealth, and they traveled that they would worship him. Even in the face of an angry, hostile King Herod who just said he was going to kill the baby, they said, where's the real king? We must worship him. They find him, and they worship him. Folks, Christmas teaches us a lot of things. The very thing that it's also teaching us is that this Jesus is the king of the universe, king of the world, king of all kings. And he's to be your king. And if your life is not bowed down to him now, then I, I ask you to. Perhaps the last week of 2016 could be full of change and redirection for you. And perhaps 2017 can be the first year of your life that you say, I want to be surrendered. I want to be bowed down. I was in the locker room up there on Friday night talking to a team. And I already told you what my speech was about basketball, but I had about a minute left. Didn't want to take too much time for the coach. I said, but you may end up being the kings of the bluegrass, and you may not. But there's one that's bigger. And one of these days, you're going to not play basketball anymore. Is he your king? And this Christmas season wants you to know that he is the king. May we not err by not bowing down to him. Where is he who's been born king? Is he your king? And may you find your life blessed and thrilled and peaceful and strong and confident because a good God that loves you reigns in your heart and you're at peace. Merry Christmas to you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for King Jesus. And thank you, God, for the scripture passages that let us know you're the king. And we're wrong if we start trying to position our lives to not be surrendered to you. Oh, Father, have mercy upon us. Be gracious to us, knowing that the king died for our sins. In his name we pray. Amen.